0: De ster van de stad altijd dichtbij, RTV TV Maastricht.
1: listening to Student Radio Maastricht again. Uh, I'm still here with Salo. Um, Hello! Yes? <laughs> and we also have a guest here um, to talk about our topic of adoption. Our guest is Dr. Lise Wesseling.
2: Yes? yes, Lise Wesseling, you are an associate professor in the Department of Literature and Arts here in, the, in Maastricht University.
3: Yes, I'm a full professor actually, full. so you remind me of the fact I really need to update yes, my homepage. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's all my fault. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm actually going to let you introduce yourself and uh, what you're researching about here at Maastricht University.
3: Yeah, so uh, the name of my professorial chair is Cultural Memory, Gender and Diversity. And I research Dutch colonial history especially our uh, entanglement with the Dutch East Indies, contemporary Republic of Indonesia. And, uh, uh, but um, I don't only study the past, but I'm also very interested in the echoes, the traces, the remnants of the colonial past in our own day and time.
2: Yeah, and then you try to link it to the topic of adoption?
3: Yes, uh, I am part of a research group that studies how the last phase in uh, our colonial past, so the period from 1890s to 1940, um, put children central in its colonial policies, indigenous children that is. And the idea was that if you would uh, reform, re-educate a uh, whitewash, if you like, or civilise, mm-hmm. as they called it at the time. If you if you talk the children, uh, they are they were thought to be much more malleable than their adult counterparts, and in that way, uh, you could morally uplift, as the vocabulary had it. Mm-hmm. Uh, indigenous nations much more effectively. That was all the go during the last phase of colonial, European colonial expansion. And so the, the um, systematic attempt was made to uh, distance or separate indigenous children from their birth families, their birth vel- uh, villages in more or less drastic ways uh by assigning them to day schools boarding schools uh or um giving them in adoption yeah buying them out of uh slavery and uh, re-educate them in in the families of white people
2: yeah i think that's a really interesting research and i leads us to the topic that we're going to talk about now contemporarily to adoption in the Netherlands. Yeah. Um, but first we're going to jump into our second song which is Why Can't There Be Love by D. Edwards. student radio maastricht 107.5 fm rtv maastricht we're talking about adoption and right now more specifically about non-traditional families um when yeah and when you look on the internet um about non-traditional families that could include for example single parents same-sex couples cohabitations polygamy like we just talked about before in the first hour um, and this is, yeah, opposed to the nuclear traditional family. Um, yeah, and I'm just asking myself, why do we say un- non-traditional family? Um, why do we have to use that term?
3: Yeah, um, I'm not too happy with that term <coughs> myself. I think I would prefer to talk about non-normative families because if you call them non-traditional the suggestion is that the n- heteronormative nuclear family goes a long way back. But in fact, that's not the case. If you look at it from an historical point of view, uh, the the nuclear family only set the standard for a relatively short period of time.
2: Yeah, I didn't know that actually. Yeah, I think um, also, well, about the present time, traditional families also are a lot less present than we might think. And there's a lot, there's, there's so many divorced couples, for example, nowadays, or, um, uh, yeah, these non-traditional families. I think it's also reoccurring right now.
3: Yeah, uh, I think uh, if you look at the Netherlands, where we're based uh, right now, after all, I think uh, the introduction, institutionalization of gay marriage 20 years ago, so we're now celebrating the 20th anniversary of the institution of gay marriage, I think that has had a tremendous impact on uh, diversifying our idea of what a family should be, can be, is allowed to be.
2: Yeah, I think uh, yeah, it's, it's important to give also the same rights to non-traditional families as to traditional families as, for example, by yeah, um, allowing uh, gay marriages. Um, but do you s- think that there's still privileges for uh, these so-called traditional families nowadays?
3: Um, I don't think so. Uh, I think gay couples now have exactly the same rights and duties as any other married couple. Uh, so, no, I don't think so.
2: What do you think, Zaki?
1: Um, I don't know. I mean, I think maybe there might be privileges in terms of how people view these normative, like more normative families versus a non-normative family in that sense, um, in terms of personal prejudice, in that sense, which is somewhat, I think, more of a systematic thing in the way that these things are reproduced and taught throughout society, but... Um, but I, at least in the Netherlands, I don't think there's any necessarily legal protections that exist more for normative families versus non-normative families. Of course, in the United States, that is not necessarily the case. Um, and in a number of states, you can still um, be fired for being gay, for example, or for being trans, um, mm-hmm. which is s- still a problem even in the, yep. what we think of as the Western world.
3: Yeah. 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 Yeah so indeed if you think of privilege in terms of pay or access to insurance or job security I don't think there's much difference. There could be a difference in uh, everyday microaggressions of course and gay couples or single parents or patchwork families having a lot more explaining and justifying to do in everyday social interaction than the regular heteronormative. Uh, uh family
2: yes i i think i think so too it's because yeah in our society it's still not it has still not arrived that to that point that we see all kinds of families as normal and accepted um where do you what do you think or where do you see our society going in that sense do you think that we can evolve Eventually, to that point,
3: I think we can. Although I cannot predict it, of course, because um, unexpected things happen all the time. And take, for instance, the current Corona crisis. Who could have predicted that one? Yeah. Um, But um, I hope that uh, uh, what will happen is that families will become less often isolated unit uh, then uh, they are made out to be in uh, neoliberal societies where uh, raising a family deciding to have children is treated as just another consumer uh, decision, you know. Some have as hobby sea sailing, others have as hobby raising kids. Mm. So why should the state uh, support that in any sort of way? The state doesn't support sea sailing either, right? So that's the neoliberal approach to the family. And that means that those who are uh, um, engaged in raising children are often thrown back on themselves Uh, they don't in the netherlands uh, daycare for children is still not organized properly Uh, it's either not enough or it's too expensive and both uh, discourage uh, couples from working both of them right so um, that is part of the neoliberal idea that your children are your problem and my hope would be that there would grow a broader consensus that uh, children and uh, are well, like good old Hillary said, uh, that it takes a village to raise them, and so therefore let's open up the family to these villages and uh, rather than writing it off as a private hobby.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really good point um, that also emphasizes that children are not a property of their parents but they're part of a bigger society and they should be incorporated into it and not yeah be isolated in their family or traditional family
1: yeah, that's yeah. The- that's something that I can definitely agree with yeah. and identify with myself. Um, I mean, I grew up with my, both of my parents, but they were divorced. But I also ha- spent a lot of time with my great-grandmother. And I also had my cousins who were always nearby and my aunt and my, and my grandmother, not my great-grandmother, my great-grandmother's daughter, who was there all the time. And so when you have all these people around a child, I think that really makes for a, not necessarily a more grounding experience, but you there's always someone there to protect the child, Yes. which I think is just right. so integral.
3: Yeah, it's a more resilient situation, I would say, than when you only have these two parents to depend on, and maybe you end up having only one parent in the case yeah. of divorce, and that's a very vulnerable situation, I would say. Um, and I, I think you hit the nail on the head when you use the word "property." Uh, it's a it's a mistake, I think, to regard children as the exclusive property of their two parents or to regard them as anyone's property at all
2: yes exactly um yeah i think we can jump to our next song kids by mgmt enjoy Hello and welcome back to Student Radio Mastery. You just listened to the song Kids by MGMT. Great band. I recommend listening to them. Um okay, we're back here and we're talking about adoption. I have Zaki with me on the tech. Hello, hello, hello. And Dr. Lise Wesseling as our guest. Hello. (laughs) And um yeah, actually, uh, now we would like to jump more into the topic of transnational or intercountry adoption. Um, there's something I didn't know before that there's actually a misconception uh, about adoption um, that it is very difficult to adopt uh, an EU child. So actually, most of the adoptions are foreign, um, which can o- obviously create many problems um, if you adopt a child, for example, from another country, culture race or ethnicity um and yeah um what do you think um is there the critical part of this and how is your stance on this inter-country adoption
3: yeah so the, <coughs> the phenomena of western european couples who turn out to be infertile eh? most of the time nearly always they have a long trajectory behind them of trying to find a uh, found a biological family of their own so the whole phenomena of western european couples adopting children from uh, uh, other continents uh, china used to be a donor country number one now that has shifted to uh, the African continent I have very grave doubts about it and in fact I applaud the decision of um, the Dutch government to place a hold on transnational adoptions and the reason for that is that it is impossible to guarantee that uh, the adoptee is uh, uh, freed for the for international adoption in a just equitous way. It is impossible uh, as an aspiring adoptive parent to know for sure that the adoptee is indeed for, for example an orphan and huh? uh, that the child does indeed no longer have any parent living or any other type of family for that matter and it's impossible not to know if the child has been uh, 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 made available for the adoption market through fraud uh, or even kidnapping yes. or child trafficking
2: um, to clarify also to our listeners what uh, Lise Wesseling is, talk about, is talking about is the adoption ban um, that has been um, placed by the government in February. And they did that because um, a government commission uh, yeah, found out about abuses in many cases where um, documents, for example, have been forged, or, yeah, as you said, also child trafficking, fraud and corruption. And, yeah, they did that um, to protect, actually, the children and the birth parents. Um, it was a decision that was also, in my opinion, well, very well reflected and um, yeah, they, they acknowledge that they're not able to control that mm-hmm. and then the better option would be to ban it.
3: Yes, I think so too. and uh, uh, Because you have to look at the whole picture, discourses in the West tend to pivot too much around the well-being of the adoptive parents and the well-being of the adoptee post-adoption but even if all adoptees would be happy and, and uh, uh, well situated, uh, well assimilated, then still that wouldn't necessarily mean that adoption is a good thing. Because you also have to take into account the situation of the people who gave birth to these children. and. Uh, Um, under what sort of constraints and pressures these people were made to yield their children. And uh, nearly always there are constraints of poverty or government pressure or uh, discrimination of unmarried women. And um, I find it a strange solution to, for instance, uh, the problem of poverty to take children away. I think that that doesn't help to uh, alleviate poverty. And if a society is incapable of uh, accepting unmarried women, then it's not the solution to, to deprive them of their children. I think you have to work on the acceptance. Yes. So um, those are some sources of doubt. And of course there is also a number of adoptees who is unhappy with, them not all of them for sure, but there are those who feel they don't really belong to the place where they have been transported to, who are not happy with the fact that they cannot retrace their parents because uh, the records of their adoption have been sealed, that they don't even know their own name, their first name. Uh, so, that's also part of the situation, but the bottom line of it is that you have to take the whole situation and all actors in intercountry adoption into in- account uh, and their well-being, including the well-being of the birth parents.
2: Yes, I think that's really important because, as you say, um, it's not always the case that they really want to give these children away and also these children are then sort of deprived of their origins and where they come from, and they, they, they're they not yet able to decide if that's what they want and what they need, also the parents. Um, yeah, Zaki, do you, do you have an opinion on that? <laughs>
1: I mean, it just really fascinates me more than anything else. Um, yeah, just, just the way—I mean, did it, there love issues within inter, within trans within um, within transnational adoption that I just really have not considered that much? And I know, I mean, particularly me growing—I've grown up with a lot of people who, not a lot of people, with a number of people who were adopted transnationally, and so um, not realizing that these are issue or potential issues that they could have gone through more than anything else. Um, I often hear about about transnational about issues that maybe transnational children face. Um, meaning, by which I mean children who were adopted from another, from a different country, from a different race, or transracial children, for example. And so having to navigate, okay, I may be a white parent of a child, of a black child in a country like the United States where there's all this, where there's white supremacy and all these things. How do I then how do I then navigate explaining this to this child as well? Yeah, um, yeah something that I just hadn't, mm-hmm. that I hadn't really thought much about in yeah. any real way.
3: Yeah. yeah.
2: And uh, hmm. these children are more or less westernized, which could bring us to our next song that's called Western Kids by Hippocampus. Enjoy.
4: How the kids yes. Have
2: here at Student Radio Maastricht 107.5 FM RTV Maastricht and still talking about adoption um, as you might have yeah, heard from what we said uh, we have been pretty critical about the whole topic of adoption and um, yeah if we would like to focus for example on alternatives uh, better alternatives to adoption um, we could maybe talk about fostering um, which also to trace it back to what we said before is an example of a non-traditional family. And um, yeah, how, how does that system work exactly here, uh, either in the Netherlands or in our Western cultures?
3: Yeah, so in, uh, in the Netherlands and Western Europe more broadly, a judge can intervene into a family if the child is uh, abused in whatever way. Uh, Or if the parents are addicts and cannot function as parents anymore, so uh, if the child's health and safety is at stake, uh, child protection law enables the removal of that child from its parents and then uh, the child is either put into uh, uh, an institution uh, Or uh, a foster family welcomes the child into its midst in whatever degree of intensity that they choose. So uh, some foster parents only see their foster children in the weekend uh others live together with them on a permanent more or less permanent basis it can never be fully permanent as long as the parents are the biological parents are still around because in the west the rights of parents are really well protected and that's why it's not so easy to own uh, a foster child yeah so and there's a long waiting list for for foster parents so there's a real shortage of them and many children who spend their days in institutions are waiting for such an opportunity because everyone agrees that children especially young children are better off in a family than uh, in an institution
2: and um, why do you think that yeah that there's not a big acceptance of, these, uh, of this fostering system or foster parents? Why Why do still a lot of people think it's better for a child to grow up with uh, parents that are also legally in charge of that child?
3: Um, well, um, uh, so it's not to confuse matters. Everyone agrees, I think, that children who are removed Uh, uh, by the judge from their parents are better off in a family, in a foster family, even if the foster family doesn't own them. Um, The problem is though that becoming a foster parent is less popular than uh, becoming an adoptive Mm -hmm. parent. So the irony is that on the one hand you have a long waiting list of children who are waiting um, for entry into a faster family, ideally. And on the other hand, you have a long waiting list of aspiring adoptive parents who have to wait endlessly uh, for, for an adoptee. And my idea would always be that if you could somehow yeah. <laughs> connect these two waiting lists, it really does then that ironic. might be very effective. But adoptive parents tend to be... Um, obsessed with the idea of owning the child and they are very worried if there are still biological parents around who might reclaim their rights as soon as they've kicked their addiction for instance uh, uh, that you have to deal with also because yeah like I said parents rights are very well protected so you cannot ignore them. You cannot give foster children your name. You cannot own them in any sort of way. Yeah. And adoptive parents have the illusion, I think, that they that they can own an adopted
1: child. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. I mean, what I find interesting, what this makes me think of a lot of times is the kind of movies and things that you would see particularly in the 90s and early 2000s. Um, for example, the film Raising Isaiah featuring starring Holly Berry, where there was a child who... Was taken away from her, who was actually like found somewhere. Um, this this story is very convoluted, um, but the story is uh, found in the back of a garbage truck. Uh, the bit's baby is found in the back of a garbage truck, and then later is adopted by a white woman. And then her black mother, the child's black mother, find finds out, oh, my child is alive. This whole time she thought her child was dead, and then a few years later, find out her child's alive, and, and the struggle that then happens because of that, yeah. um, and. I think I find that a lot of these times, these forms of media, it kind of portrays the the parent, the biological parent of the adoptive child, in quite a negative light, without really portraying any of the potential issues that they might face within the adoption system, or how foster, or, or how the foster system might be a better choice in these cases. I think I find that often that while adoption is seen as often the better choice, that foster, child, foster, foster that being a foster parent is seen as almost as very much more negative for the child than adoption is in the media. And it's very interesting now to hear the converse to this argument.
3: Yeah, well, I think you're quite quite right where representations of adoptive families in the media are concerned. So there are quite a few films about adoption. Uh, um, who, who turn it into a happy ending story uh, Lion is a film I can readily think of which ends with actually with an appeal to donate to a certain institution that facilitates adoption um, and uh, adoption is a very positive thing there um, and uh, I, I actually cannot think of a single film that shows the downsides and the risks and the dangers involved especially for the birth parents the birth parents tend to be excluded from the picture
1: yeah wow that is a really interesting topic thank you
3: yes
2: and uh, I think this could lead us to our next song um, Pumped Up Kicks by Foster the People Student radio maastricht you just listen to pumped up kicks foster the people um and yeah during that song we just had a chat and you lise wesseling you said something very nice um that we should let the kid choose i think um yeah um it's not always possible of course but uh, as much as you can you should keep in mind what's good for the child and what the child would want and let it choose if it can I think uh, that it was just a nice thing to add to our conversation. Um, and yeah, I wanted to ask you, um, because we had a very interesting talk, uh, where we could get maybe more information on the topic, uh, what you could refer us to?
3: Well, if you're interested in fostering a child, which I'm all in favor of, evidently, uh, all you, you need to do is Google pleegouder worden or go to the website of the Willem Schrikker Stichting or Pleegouderzorg Nederland and uh, you very quickly find out what you need to do. Uh, uh, in the Netherlands there's also a yearly campaign to inspire people to, to foster a child. The last campaign was called Open Your World, I think that's a very nice way of describing what, what it is that you actually do uh, when, you, when you take such a step and um, yeah, that would be a good place to go to, I think.
2: Thank you. Um, yeah, do you have any last thoughts or recommendations or anything you would like to, to add to the topic?
3: give up the illusion that you can own a child and don't regard children as property. That's uh, a sound piece of, of advice for anyone who takes on responsibility and who performs care for a child. That, uh, the child is not your possession uh, and doesn't matter whether you're a biological parent or an adoptive parent, or a foster parent, in all cases, I think. Uh, perhaps we should all model ourselves after foster parents, because foster parents can't uh, uh, fall prey to the illusion that, that the child is their exclusive property. And uh, I think they set an example as such for all
1: families. Thank you so much for adding all this, thank you.
2: <laughs> thank you.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that really does actually what you were saying here about like your children not being property, I think that really does, really, I, really, I find it amazing how the second hour has really linked to our first hour. Our first hour all was talking about um, non-traditional relationships in the sense of non-monogamous relationships. And, you know, yes. I think treating children like property, do not do it because you do not treat anyone like property. Exactly. You don't own people and they are free to, let them grow into their own people and let them be their own people, independent of ourselves. Um, yeah, but What a nice ending, no. Zaki. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah.
5: Um,
1: yeah, but now it is time for to end the show with our cultural agenda. Uh, so Salame, you have the information, I believe, right?
2: <laughs> yes, um, we have, uh, first of all, the Ramadan Refugee Project food boxes. So also if you go to the Instagram uh, of the Refugee Project, you will find more information, but basically you can order food box and then you will be introduced on how to cook uh, the delicious food that you got and the money is being donated.
1: Wonderful, wonderful. Um, in addition to that, we also have new podcasts on our SoundCloud. Um, for when we have a new episode of Queering the Perspective by Bella Bellissima. Um, listen to it. It's going to be great. Everything that they do is fantastic. And just, you know, just it's really good for just getting out of the idea of, you know, heterosis normativity. Just learn more about queer culture. Beyond that, we also have our new podcast that we're doing in conjunction with the Refugee, Refugee Project, which will be out in the coming weeks.
2: Nice. Yeah yeah um, I will thank you Zaki for doing the tag today oh,
1: no problem <laughs> I, I'm always here so I'm yeah, always happy always to do always
2: supporting us and uh, thank you to the, you Dr. Wesseling
3: thank you for having me
2: yeah it was really nice to have a talk with you and um, yeah also thank you of course to RTV Maastricht for always having us here and um, yeah I'm gonna close this episode I hope you have a nice evening and thanks for listening
1: yep we're ending this episode with the song Here For You by Neil Young hope you enjoy
4: when your summer days come tumbling down and you find